you are if you are following the reading from the church bible it's on page 11 11 1111 it's acts chapter 17 starting at verse 16 and sam will read the first few verses While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, And we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is the word of the Lord. How many, be honest, how many people would freak out if they had to do a Bible reading for the first time and got some of those words? Well done, Sam. Good on you. Uh, Good job. We are going through uh, just a few little bits in Acts while the school holidays are on, and then we're going to, next week, uh, pick up a series that we'd started previously on the book of Mark, so we're getting towards the end of Mark. So we're going to be, after this Sunday, uh, going through the rest of Mark right up until Christmas, uh, which is going to be really exciting and just a good opportunity to just get back to a bare-bones gospel and hear the message about Jesus. But how about I pray before we look at this part of the Bible? Dear Father, thank you that you speak to us, even as we sit here today, so far after this story about Paul in Athens, that you do speak to us, you reveal yourself to us. Not only do we learn more about you, but we learn more about ourselves and our world and how we engage you and connect with you. So Lord, I pray that you'd open our ears and our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. It is October and it's coming up to Halloween and a lot of people get into Halloween. It seems to be a growing trend in Australia that people uh, see it as a fun day out where they can do some decorations, they can dress up and just get into a bit of a party kind of spirit with lollies and junk food and meet their neighbours and things like that. And it's the kind of thing that we've sort of just adopted from another country, if not another world, this idea of Halloween. But I wonder if we tried to, or if I tried to convince you what is Halloween about and tried to convince you to believe why it's important for us, important as much as nearly life and death, would you believe me? 
So if we go back to what Halloween, how it started and what it's all about, started back kind of, the history goes back a thousand years, the Halloween sort of stuff, 500 years, but from the Druids in Ireland, where they uh, had this idea that there was one day per year where life and death crossed over. So on this one day a year, that spirits would come out of the graves and start mixing with living beings, with people like us. And the spirits were bad. You don't want a dead spirit coming around, following you around. So you did things to, to keep the spirits away for this one day a year when they rose from the grave and come out uh, to seek you out, that you would, uh, the village would light a big fire and they would all stay because the spirits weren't fond of fire, so they stayed away from the fire. But then you'd have to leave the fire and go home. So what they would do is dress up in something more scarier than the spirit. So you'd dress up in different sort of costumes uh, to go home. So cause you didn't want the spirit following you home. You didn't want it to know where you lived. So you would dress up to scare the spirit away so it didn't want to follow you. But it was so concerning. Like if you've got this conviction and this belief that these spirits are going to follow you, they're going to harass you for that day and just ruin your life, what the poorer people used to do in the community was go uh, to your door and knock on your door and say, look, um, yeah, it's this, this night that the spirits come out. Uh, would you like me to pray for you? And the poorer people in the community would pray for protection over that household in, as a um, thank you gift. <clears throat> the people would offer them food, uh, treats and just nicer things that the poorer people didn't have. So here we get the sort of things. Uh, we start lighting candles in pumpkins because that's our fire that's going to keep the spirits away. We start dressing up in costumes because that's going to keep the spirits away. And we trick or treat, but I don't think there's much praying happening today. Uh, things like that. But our world is so different now. that If I told you people live their life with this conviction that this is real. I've really got to get the fire. I've really got to dress up. I've really got to get other people praying for protection over my household. I've really got to do these things or else my life is going to be ruined. It's like another world away, isn't it? That if we tried to convince anybody knocking on our doors, trick-or-treating, say, oh, yeah, please pray for my house and good costumes, um, you know, this is life or death situation, they just wouldn't believe you. It's like, what are you talking about? It's a different world. In fact, the world that we're in today just sees things so differently that even when we talk about it, we would go, does anybody really believe that stuff? Well, in that time, they did. But they're worlds apart, knowing this, uh, what, what they believed and what we believe and to even what we do now. Now, I wonder, have you ever felt like that, being a Christian? If you start telling people what Christianity is about, that we believe uh, in a God who created the universe, this God loved us so much that he sent his son into this world, in, in Jesus, to be born, to live a life, to do miracles, to be even, when he was killed, that he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave to show that he was God before ascending into heaven, and one day he's going to return. Do you ever feel like that's a bit of the Halloween-type story? That we might believe it, that we might have the conviction of it, or even if we're here today and we're checking this story out and still a bit sceptical as well, should I really believe this? It does sound a bit weird because our world that we live in, our culture, is just so far away, so very different Sam Chan is a guy who's written a book just recently 
about evangelism in a sceptical world. He knows people have got questions, people have doubts about Christianity. But his tagline for the book is how to make the unbelievable news about Jesus more believable. Even he can see, look, when other people look at the Bible, at Christians, they're going, I can't believe that. That is a world away from me. It's totally different. I can't, I've got too many barriers to even understand what that's about. It sounds like a joke or a fairy tale. Now, what he's not saying is we need to change the gospel. We need to change the message about Jesus so people will accept the message. But what he is saying is recognising there's these two worlds, these two cultures, the culture of uh, the Bible and Christianity, the worldview that there is a God and we sit under that God, and the other world, the worldview that says, well, I'm judge of everything. I'm going to make up my own mind what, what I think and what I believe and my own destiny. And he's trying to bring these two worlds together. How do you make the unbelievably good message about Jesus believable to this world who's so far away? As I said, we might be wrestling with this sort of question this morning. They talk about the God, they talk about the Bible, but it's just too unbelievable. Well, I hope this morning just wrestling with some of that uh, helps to break some of, that, uh, some of those questions down to, to what are the real questions we should be asking. But also, how do we as a church reach our community? How do we engage our community with the message of Jesus? How do we make the unbelievably good news about Jesus believable? So this is where I think Acts in chapter 17 with the Apostle Paul uh, is very helpful for us. See, Paul uh, goes into a city called Athens, and we have some really good uh, places. Sorry, there's the book. If you want to buy the book, it's a good book. If you want to get into Athens, Athens is really nice too. Um, but we have a lot of the, the, the buildings that were around that day. So when the Apostle Paul, now he's a gospel man. He wasn't always a gospel man. In fact, he was a big doubter. He persecuted the church. But when he saw the risen Jesus in a vision, he believed. And now he goes from town to town preaching the message of Jesus. And he's gone into this city called Athens. In Athens, you can see um, they're big on showing in their architecture, showing what they stand for. So they have temples, prominent temples. Uh, so the one at the top there, the Pantheon, I think, is um, the Athenian god temple. Uh, they have statues of their other gods. They, they don't mind having lots of gods. Uh, that she's prominent there. They're also a big on education. They were the educational centre of Greece. So they were big, that's the library there on the end there. And they like to get around and talk about ideas and learn from each other. Particularly, philosophy was big in the day. They're Greeks, they like talking about concepts and ideas. And a lot of the philosophy is about the meaning of life. Why are we here? Why do we exist? What's the purpose of life? Now, as Paul walks into this town, uh, we're told his response when he gets in there, so from verse 21, when he's shocked, he sees, oh, sorry, he's shocked um, when he sees them, uh, uh, what's going on around the temples, that he sees them, that he's greatly distressed at the idols of what's going on. And you can imagine walking there. They're not just statues for decoration that we might see today with our worldview, but for them, that is the God. 
And if they haven't got a temple that you can go in and worship, go in and sacrifice to, they've got a little shrine at the bottom of the, of the statue where you can go and bring your gifts. So you might burn incense and, and pray to that God. You might even bring it food because, uh, you know, gods need to eat as well. So they're dependent on you to bring food. So you support that God. And in a superstitious sort of way, the more you support that God, the more it'll bless you in your business and in your market and in your trade in Athens. But for Paul, he's greatly distressed because he's seeing all this activity. It's not just seeing the idols, it's people coming along and with their gifts to the shrines and they're praying to them and they're worshipping these idols, which is their gods. But he's not just grieved that they're, they're worshipping the wrong gods, he's grieved that there's no church in Athens. This is the first time the gospel's coming, as far as we know, to Athens. So he can't just say, well, let me go down to my local church and talk to the pastor there. There is no church. There is no gospel witness in Athens. All these people are searching, searching for meaning for life, searching for answers. But Paul says, you need Jesus and you've got no Jesus in this town. We can even see in verse 18 where he, he starts proclaiming the message. What's the message? Jesus and the resurrection. He knows the answer. But he's got to engage the community with the answer, with the answer to the questions that they're seeking. So Paul's gone to this city, and you can sort of think through or assume the process that he's going through. He understands we're given detail about Athens and what they're like, how they're unique from other cities. And for Paul, he's kind of thinking through, how do I show that a world is, that is far from God, they're far from the God of the Bible, how can I show them that they can really know and relate to the living God, the one true living God? How can I make the unbelievable to them more believable? How am I going to bring these two worlds together? So what he does, he starts reasoning with them. We see he goes to the synagogue. That's where the Jews go and worship because it's very multicultural in Athens in that day. He reasons with them there <clears throat> to the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Um, and he also goes to the streets in front of the statues. You can imagine in the marketplace, they've got all their statues and their places of, uh, their, with their gods. And he goes and speaks, preaches to them in the streets. Now, in Athens, this is normal. It's actually normal to go and float your ideas. And there's lots of um, documentation of guys like Socrates. The big philosophers would spend most of their time not in the libraries writing their books, but in the streets sharing their ideas and arguing for things. So this is the norm of the culture. It's not like Paul did it in that day. We need to do that today because it's not that normal today to go and preach in the street. But for them, that was the norm. It's going to, to engage with the community. And he does engage with them. We get some people named, some Epicureans. <clears throat> the, the two schools of philosophy are big in Athens at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. So the Epicureans, uh, we know a little bit about what they believe because they had lots of documentation. They believe that God is very small, he's a small God, and actually he's so far away, he's so distant from me that I don't really have to have anything to do with him. He's got nothing to do with me. I know he exists, but... It's trivial. I'm not answerable to him. There's no afterlife. He's just far away. Well, the Stoics, they believe in many gods. In fact, they're not God, the gods aren't distant, but the gods are very close to us. The gods, the many gods of the universe are in the universe and we're of the universe, so the gods are in us. In fact, we can be gods to an extent. 
Again, they don't believe in the resurrection or afterlife, but they believe in many gods, and God, we're so close to God, we, we can call ourselves gods as well. Two very different schools of thought, but some with great influence. <clears throat> now, you'd think in this culture, in this world, that somebody come in talking about a god, it's a little bit different to theirs, but talking about a god is not that strange that Paul would be accepted. They go, tell us about your god. They seem to be open to accepting every other god. But when Paul comes in, they say, what is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. Saying, even though you're talking God, it's so far from our worldview, so different from what we understand. So now Paul's got to bring these two worlds together because they don't understand the message of Jesus. They won't understand the gospel. They don't understand one God and resurrection. He gets the opportunity, he gets invited to the big stage, the Areopagus, uh, from verse 19, is there. Um, but he, this is where everybody comes together to talk about the ideas. So you're not just talking to the students in the streets, you're actually talking to the lecturers, the head of the schools. They've come together to talk about their ideas and they thrash it out, a little bit like the TED Talks. They come in, you present your stuff, and then they argue about it, what they think about it. But he comes in and he's got this... This is a great opportunity for Paul, right? If he wants to spread the gospel in Athens, he's got the grand stage now. Now, if you were in his situation, what would you say? What would you say? You've got one opportunity in front of a big audience, important people. What would you say about the gospel and why they should believe it? Would you go up and say, you know, Athenians, you know, I see you're very um, pagan in what you do. You're very rebellious. You're sinners in what you do. Athenians, you are, you're going to be judged. You're going to go to hell unless you change. How would you... Share the gospel. Paul takes a particular approach. He starts in verse 22. So he stands up at the meeting and says, People of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. He doesn't get them off board saying you're very pagan or selfish, but you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See, they're happy with the idea of gods and many gods. They're even happy with the idea of there could be gods that we don't even know about. We'll build them a statue anyway because we don't want them to feel left out. But we'll acknowledge them. So he's using that as a way of... He's not saying you guys are wasting your time with your many gods. He's actually engaging them, speaking their language using their philosophical ideas. You know, you believe in many gods, let me tell you about the god that you don't know about. So he's engaging them at that point, speaking their language. And he goes on in verse 24. Uh, I'll just give you the highlights uh, rather than going through every point. But he's talking about in verse 24, you don't create a place for God to live, he created a place for you. Because for them, they had their gods, they had their shrines. If we're going to recognise God, we need to build a statue of him. We need to have a shrine so we can bring him food and, and help him out, that God. He says, no, no, this God you don't know about, this God of the Bible, he is providing a place for you to live, not dependent on you for him. Verse 25, he says, God is not, uh, 
God is not dependent on you, but you are dependent on him. Because I think that we need to feed these gods. We need to keep them happy. He says, no, no, no. He's so big, this God. You are dependent on him. He provides you rain, water, and food to live on. Verse 26 to 27, he says, God is not lost. In fact, we are the ones that are lost. We are the ones that need to seek him and find him and reach him. But he's not far from us. See, they used to think that God is so far, so distant, that we've got to go searching for him if he's going to faint. Well, he says, God's not waiting to be rescued. God's there. We need rescuing. We need to find him. But he is there. He's not far from us. So he's engaging with their, their ideas, saying, no, no, this is what God is really like. And then he says, have we come from God? And he uses this language, relational language, like God our Father, that he's not an idol, he's not made of stone or gold, uh, but we're his off, offspring, this, this relational side of things. Because idols can be very distant because they're just stone and wood, if gold, you know, they're not real. So no, no, this God is real and relational. So Paul has painted a picture of a big God. They thought God or gods are really small. But no, no, this God is a big God. And if you get a, your head around that, if you understand who this big God is, then he goes on in verse 30, talking about how big this God is. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You need to turn around. Seek him, he says. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Finally talks about a man that God has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, this man, from the dead. Doesn't specifically mention Jesus there, but I'm sure Paul gets to that point. The one that got raised from the dead is proof that there is a big God. He has power over dead. Now, it's funny that he goes through all this spiel. I'm sure there are only sermon notes that we've got here, not the whole sermon. I'm sure he could have rattled, spoken for a long, long time. But it's only at the end he actually gets to what God is about, that save salvation through Jesus, that you need to respond through Jesus to have a relationship with him, to have life eternal, even life after death. And the resurrection shows it. But he's gone through all these steps to get there. Now, for you and me, if we were going to do a gospel presentation, you want Jesus to be pretty upfront, don't you? But for Paul, he's worked really hard at taking this world that is very far from God, seeing the gospel, this resurrection, is unbelievable, to this place to go, no, actually, when I talk about the resurrection, I'm talking about a God, a big God that can do that. And actually, it's, it's quite plausible. Even using your own philosophy, your own ideas. This is quite plausible for you to see this. So he's worked really hard at engaging his community, speaking the language of his community to do that. But why is he only now mentioned Jesus raised from the dead? And I think we're given a bit of a hint in verse 32. Because it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But then others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. It's very mixing. I suspect if he went straight up and said, hey, you need to follow this Jesus, he was raised from the dead, maybe all of them right from the start would go, hang on. You know, the leap from this worldview to this worldview is way too far. We need to 
think this through a bit and they're sneering. But no, no, he's done the hard work. Some of them are still sneering, but others are going, hey, actually, this is plausible. I might want to check this out. This could be the real deal about God. See, Paul engages with the culture, engages with their ideas, but he's speaking their language. He doesn't change the gospel, soften the gospel, but he's presenting it to them. Now, for some of us, this is a big leap. We want to we have our, this is what we believe, this is our key doctrines, and slam people, this is what you need to believe. But it's actually the Bible goes to great lengths to engage with people where they're at. So, for example, have you ever wondered why we've got four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Why have we got four accounts of Jesus? And sometimes when you compare the accounts, they're not all the same. Some of them are saying different things. Why do, why do we have that in our scriptures? Well, they're four guys that have written the account of Jesus to share the message of Jesus with four different groups of people. And to, if you're going to engage four different worldviews, you share with them the message that's going to engage them, to show them. So let me give you a quick rundown. For Matthew, uh, Matthew's written to Jews. So if you're going to write to old school Jews that, who know the scriptures, you want to have lots of Old Testament references. You want to have show Jesus' analogy going back. Jesus is not just some random, but he's going back to Abraham, who's the father of Judaism. God made promises to Abraham. So what Matthew's doing is saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. So if you're reading Matthew at home, you're going to see lots of Old Testament, lots of promises that God made, lots of fulfillment in Jesus and how he is the Christ. That's, that's Matthew's objective. Now for Mark, he's writing to Romans. Romans, if you think of Rome, the blue-collar workers, the soldiers, got order. They, they just want to know, it's not about the ideas and fulfilment in history. They want to know about, are you doing what you're meant to do? Like, what you, your actions reflect who you are. You know, think a soldier. If you're a loyal soldier, you're going to show it on the battlefield. So for Jesus, there's, there's no genealogy in Mark. It doesn't really matter for the, for the Romans. They've blue collar. Mark's the shortest gospel. I used to be a tradie, a mechanic, blue collar. I like short books. Mark's the book for me. Uh, it's short, to the point. This is Jesus. And Mark, in Mark's gospel, it has the most statements out of all the gospels of what Jesus did. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. And Jesus did that. Because they want to know what did he do and what does that show us? What does that tell us about him? And it's very significant that you get right at the end of the Mark and it talks about a Roman soldier saying that, um, that surely, when, they see, when he sees Jesus on the cross, he says, surely this is the Christ. Now, to us, we go, he's a Roman soldier. What credibility has he got? But to the Romans, again, he's a soldier. He's seen Jesus. He's seen Jesus, what he did. And sure, he's saying, surely it is a Christ. So he's got a particular uh, message to that culture. Luke is writing to Gentiles. It's a little bit more like us. We're a mixed bag of different beliefs, different backgrounds. Now, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to show who Jesus is, it doesn't matter much if you go back to Abraham, because who's Abraham? So in Luke's genealogy, he goes back to Adam and Eve. He goes back right to the start. So if you're going to go right to the start, so God started this plan, so Luke's a good one for big picture, what God's doing in the whole of creation. Go back to Adam and Eve, and through Adam and Eve, there's a broken world, there's sin. So Luke draws that out, the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity. But the emphasis on Jesus is Jesus is sinless. 
He's, the one, he's not like us. He's not a rebel. He's not far from God, but he's the one that can draw us back to God. So Jesus is sinless, and he's our saviour that can save the sinful creation. Uh, so that's for Gentiles. For John, speaking to Greeks, and already we've had a bit of a taste of Greeks, they're big on their philosophy, big on their concepts. They're big on the question of what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? So in a philosophical way, John starts his gospel going, in, begin- in the beginning was the word, we have it translated in the Greeks, in the beginning was the logos, and we kind of go, what is the word or the logos? It's another concept because he's writing to Greeks. You know, this is, this is the meaning of life. He was in the beginning. And now let me tell you about who he is. So again, I think if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you kind of go, there's, there's, there's one book that I'm drawn to most and it probably reflects your personality and the way your brain works because they're written to four different worldviews, four different communities to tell them this is who Jesus is. And we're going to communicate it in a number of different ways to engage you, to speak your language, to answer your questions, because Jesus is what you need to know. Now, through this, this is a bit of a lesson on how to read the Bible, but it's also a bit of a lesson on are we asking the right questions or are we looking for the right answers? Because if you're here today and you're wondering, well, I still don't get Jesus... Maybe we need to work out the sort of questions we're asking and, and how we're looking for it to be answered. So, for, uh, so I've got three, three suggestions. Sorry, this is better. Three suggestions uh, that we need to look into about how we communicate the message of the gospel. We need to think about our gospel conviction. We need to know the language of our, that our culture is speaking and the questions they're asking. We also then need to ask ourselves, do we actually have confidence in the power of God to save? So first one, our gospel conviction. See, I was really struck, I'm not sure whether you picked it up, how when Paul went into Athens, he was grieved by what he saw. You know, people worshipping false gods, they, he knows they could find true life in Jesus but they're selling their soul, chasing empty dreams and empty promises. They're going to miss out on eternal life. So he was convicted. He had to speak about Jesus. Paul had just been kicked out of the previous three towns. We didn't go into that context. But he's been chased out of towns once he was arrested. Uh, but he's finally gone to Athens. You kind of say, Paul, just take it easy. Just have a bit of a break. But he said, no, I see these people. See, for us, if we've got the conviction of heaven is real, and hell's a reality. And if you believe in Jesus, you have life in heaven for all of eternity. But if you don't believe in Jesus, hell is real and you're going to spend eternal punishment there. And you're going to be answerable for the choices you make. If we believe that, which we do believe that here as a church at Southside, that's our conviction. When we see people who are rejecting God, who are not listening to God, or just can't understand, ignorant of who Jesus is, that's our conviction of going... We're grieved on their state. We're grieved and we want them to know the truth. That, that's our motivation. That's our conviction. So we have um, one of our vision statements here is that we want to reach, we, we work and pray to reach 1% of our community. So within 10 minutes of this church, there's over 100,000 people. So we're going to work and pray that God would use us to reach over 1,000 people. 
We want to fill this church a number of times to reach a thousand people. And then, who knows, we'll keep going after that. Why would we stop? But sometimes that can be understood as we just want a big church. That's what Southside's mission is. We just want a big church. If it was that, we're wasting our time. But if our conviction is we want to see a thousand people saved, we want to see a thousand people come to know Jesus, we want to see a thousand more people come into the kingdom through what we're doing here that God would use us. That's exciting. That's our vision. It's not about a big church seeing more people saved. So that is our conviction. Do we have that conviction of, of grief and pain that when we see people lost and not knowing the answer? Which leads to the second question. Do we know the, cult, the language that our culture is speaking and the questions they're asking? So historically, I could do a big lesson on uh, modernism and how people used to think sort of 50, 100 years ago uh, in a modern sort of way. Now we're in a postmodern world and now people analyse truth differently. In a modern world, people wanted truth. And if I want to know the truth, I go to an authority and I get the answer and that's what I'm going to do where now truth is a bit more subjective. How am I going to get the answer to my questions? So before, people were asking, what is truth? Give me an answer. They'd go to an expert. So somebody's go, what is the truth about God? I'd go and see a minister. He'll tell me the truth about God. But now it's, what is the truth? Don't just give me an answer. It's show me the truth. Show me how it works. Show me does it work. So what's true for one is not true for another. You might have heard that saying. But now it's determined on, show me that it works, and then I'll accept it as true. Let me give you an example. Uh, we were camping uh, about 12 months ago in Northern Territory. I love telling stories about my camping trip in Northern Territory. But we met this couple, and we got to know them over several days, uh, and we realised they were, you know, grey nomads travelling through through winter having the good life, they'd never met anybody uh, who was from church. They knew some people who went to church, but they'd never met a pastor particularly. And we got discussing over several days of getting to know each other, and the, the gentleman said to me, he says, look, there's something I don't get. He says, my mum goes to a church, little old church, there's like 20 oldies sitting there, the plate goes around, they put in a few change, at the end of the day they get 12 bucks. And so how does the church survive? They've got big, massive savings, the millions that are stashed away that they live off. You know, what's that all about? I was able to say, well, actually, that's not... Our church doesn't have lots stashed away. That's not what they're living off. In fact, our church has over a $250,000 budget and all that money comes from our congregation, 100%. There's no government handouts, nothing like that. It's all from us. He nearly fell off his chair, his, his camping chair. He says, what? That people would give, give that much, seriously. Why, do, why would people give that? And he's sort of like, politely, I know you're the pastor and you're a good bloke, but why would people give to what you're doing? Because so, people believe it. People believe that investing in eternity is a good investment. If that's where they're going, and they want other people to know it, this is why we give. We give back to a good God. We gave a very short gospel explanation, but it was never about... What is Jesus about? What is the resurrection about? Tell me about evolution and science. Tell me about all this stuff. It's show me it works. Do you guys even give to support what you believe? It's like, yeah, we do. And that really impacted him about his view on Christianity. This whole show me idea. So if people see us as a church, they're show me. 
If Jesus is loving, show me. If I walk in the door here, am I going to be loved? If Jesus is accepting, if I walk in the door here, am I going to be accepted? If we are children of God when we believe in him, show me. If I come in here, am I going to be treated as as one of the family? Show me. This is where we can do lots as a local church. This is what Jayesh is talking about with the life course. The life course, six courses explaining who Jesus is. It's not just somebody up the front saying this is who Jesus is. It's over a meal or over dessert. It's, It's relationships. Show me the relationship. Show me that you believe it. And this is the answers that we're doing through our actions. The third thing uh, is, do we have the confidence in the power of God to save? Because sometimes we go, oh, in Acts we saw 2,000 people saved. In the next chapter, 3,000 people saved. The Holy Spirit was really working then, but where is he now? Has the power of God left us now? What is our problem with the church today? that we haven't, We're not seeing revivals like that. In fact, it's really interesting that when we see thousands saved... It's encouraging, shows that the power of God is at work, but it's not the norm. So in Athens, we have the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest evangelists we we know of. And he's going to Athens, had this uh, speech that only an apostle could do to engage the community. And he comes up, uh, and we're told at the end, he says, out of all that speech, there's like a couple of people said they were saved. He names a couple. There's, There's a few more that I don't really know the names of. But there's no real revival happening in Athens. We don't even know if a church was planted in Athens after that, how it got off the ground. So it's kind of like Paul had the power of God with him. Paul could explain the gospel very clearly. But the power of God doesn't, isn't reflected in numbers, but it's reflected in one person at a time. It's the power of God changing each of those people who followed Paul. It's the power of God changing each of those campers that we heard about on Fun Adventure Camp. It's the power of God changing one life at a time. And we don't get blinded by the, the, big, the big numbers, but one day at a time, we're going to try and reach our community with the power of God. We're going to try and engage with them, try and speak their language. Show them that it's real. Show them that it's true. Show them that it works. And they can find salvation in Jesus too. I hope that if you're here today, uh, even if you're here for the first time and you see what we're doing here, you can see we actually take this really seriously. We actually do believe it. And we're investing in eternity with our whole lives. But even for us as a church family, we're all on mission. You know, we're talking about forming a mission team. We've got welcomers that do different jobs, people doing different roles in our church. But we're all on this mission, showing our community that Jesus is real. And I can show you, you know, We can hopefully say the words and explain what the gospel is. But let me show you the way I live and my priorities. That's a big task in a world that that doesn't see it because it's unbelievable to them. We've got to help them see the believable and have life. Let me pray. Dear Father, thanks for being a good, loving God that you would reach out to us. That even though we were far from you and for many of us, that we just couldn't believe that there would be a God, believe that there would be... uh, your son come and died and rose again. It's just unbelievable, this story. But yet, your power has reached out to us and changed our hearts. That you have turned us around and made, made us a part of your family. Lord, we long for those around us to know that message as well. For those in our community, for our, our families and friends. Lord, that does grieve us to know that they don't know for you and they're far from you. So please use us 
Use us as a church, but use us as individuals to bring them to you, to bridge the gap, to make the unbelievable believable. And they can see it's plausible and they can uh, see that it's, they can find life in you. So we pray that you would use us in Jesus' name. Amen.